Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America, Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about the coronavirus and hydroxychloroquine, the facts. Dr. Robin Armstrong joins me to talk about the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and vaccine tyranny, ID cards, and more. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello and welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. Ever since President Trump used the term hydroxychloroquine, in a national press conference, there has been an unrelenting attempt to attack that as a possible drug to help treat patients with COVID-19. And there is just mockery, derision, characterization of it as unreliable. Today, we're going to have joining us in just a few minutes, Dr. Robin Armstrong. He's a Texas doctor, and he has been among those doctors using prescribing hydroxychloroquine to his patients actually having tested positive for the coronavirus. And I want to have him talk to all of us firsthand about how what his findings were, his firsthand observation of how patients did. But before I do that, in today's first five, I just want to tell you a little bit of the data and my sense of what the agenda is of those who are so determined to criticize hydroxychloroquine. To start with, in the state of Florida, doctors are using hydroxychloroquine to fight the coronavirus. Governor Ron DeSantis arranged for a million doses of hydroxychloroquine to come to Florida as a treatment for COVID-19 patients. And this is after having heard, not just heard President Trump mention this as a means of treatment for COVID-19 patients, but after the world became aware that other countries, France in particular, ran a lengthy study of hydroxychloroquine and its impact on patients with COVID-19. It is a drug having been, it's been approved by the FDA in the past for treatment of malaria. And it was a drug that became subject conversation in part because it appeared that people who live in countries where a lot of the population is regularly consuming this anti-malarial drug, regularly taking it, they had a lower incidence of COVID-19. So people began to wonder, is there some possibility that hydroxychloroquine can actually help COVID-19 patients? There's a brand name, there are probably many brand names for hydroxychloroquine, but one of them in Florida, which became popular, is um, Plaquenil, or we'll have Dr. Armstrong in a moment correct my pronunciation. I just asked, I'm not sure how to pronounce, but point is, it's an FDA-approved tr treatment for both lupus and malaria uh, being used in Florida by doctors there who are praising its its efficacy in dealing with patients who have COVID-19. In fact, in Florida, there was a doctor talking about they're using it, hydroxychloroquine, across our 45 facilities in the state, over 60,000 patients. They're using it selectively as needed, and they're basically saying it's working very, very well. In Los Angeles, a doctor reported seeing success with hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. This doctor is saying he sees significant success in prescribing this malaria drug, hydroxychloroquine, in combination with zinc to treat patients with severe symptoms of COVID-19. So it's not an unknown drug. It did not descend from Mars last week. It has been in place and used for other purposes. But again, the Los Angeles doctor reporting that, as well as doctors and others 
actually referring to it as a use of a miracle. And they use the expression coronavirus drug cocktail. Um, and I'm, I'm raising all these to say that if you just listen to the mainstream media, you might think that no sane doctor in the entire country was ever prescribing hydroxychloroquine. But actually what we're finding, what is being reported by people wanting to dig in and understand the truth, is that doctors in this country who care deeply about their patients are finding hydroxychloroquine to be an effective treatment to help patients with COVID-19. I mentioned the media being extremely harsh and criticizing people uh, who are doctors who are relying on or advocating for hydroxychloroquine. Make two last points to close up my first five today. One is that among the main uh, public voices being very critical of hydroxychloroquine is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was the lead, uh, you know, leader in terms of advising President Trump on how to move forward in handling the coronavirus crisis in this country. Dr. Fauci, uh, as we've talked about many times in the show, has locked arms with many in the in the arena of medicine that are advocating a very international approach, the advocacy for vaccines and vaccines as being the uh, kind of the uh, panacea solution to all sorts of problems in the world. And so he has been trending toward, Dr. Fauci in all of his uh, statements, has been trending toward advocating for hydroxychloroquine as a kind of dangerous dicey, not too sure. Let's hold out, let's go for it, let's wait till the vaccine exists, let's wait to see if that vaccine can possibly do um, do some good, and, and let's not get all excited about this hydroxychloroquine, kind of painting it as an alarming outlying perhaps dangerous prescription to give to patients. So he's been very, very um, prominent in, uh, in, in kind of just tamping enthusiasm about the use of hydroxychloroquine. And the final point to wrap up today's first five is continuing with the Democrat media mob's endless effort to undermine President Trump and everything he does or says. I, I think among the main reasons that people uh, in the media are so critical of hydroxychloroquine is just because President Trump has advocated for it based on what he's read and heard other experts say. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I mentioned before we start, we have a guest joining us. He's going to join us via Skype. Um, this is Dr. Robin Armstrong. I'll tell you very briefly, I, he does have a, a, a very prominent um, place in Texas. He's well known among Texas conservative Republicans. He has been a uh, the national committee man, or might, maybe even still is a national committee man, but he has been prominent in Republican politics, but he's also a medical doctor. And I wanted to, I, I saw actually, I'll just tell you, there were articles out there very unfriendly to him talking about his choice of, of prescribing hydroxychloroquine to patients in his practice in the Houston area who were suffering from COVID-19. And I want to get him on and just have him talk to us about why he prescribes it, what he's seeing, and what he thinks all, all about, about this whole controversy. So, Dr. Robin Armstrong, welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you. So glad you are here. Well, let's just jump right in. Let me start with, just tell us and our listeners, you're a doctor in Houston. How long have you practiced medicine? I practiced medicine for almost 20 years. Um, ironically enough, my first... Um, day of practicing medicine was on September 11th, 2001. And so on 9-11 was my first day practicing. I uh, completed my residency and, and started working in the hospital where I was born, which is where I work today. Wow. Okay. That is kind of memorable as, 
a right. date we'll never forget. Okay, so uh, in Houston, you have a practice, a medical practice. You work at a hospital. You also, uh, I understand, are the main doctor, a doctor, uh, in facilities that where retire or people of more senior years are living, retirement facilities or care facilities. Can you describe all the different uh, places where you are working in Houston? Certainly. So, um, so I am the um, owner of Armstrong Medical Group, and we have about eleven practitioners. Uh, five doctors and six physician assistants and nurse practitioners. And we practice in hospitals predominantly. And so we have a hospital practice and we also have a, um, a nursing home practice as well. We've got about two to 300 nursing home patients and also um, practice in hospitals. And so we take care of ICU patients. We take care of, um, you know, patients just admitted for chest pain. And so we have a, a very wide ranging practice. We go to rehabs and, and, um, other long-term acute care hospitals. And this is kind of was the backdrop of how we got it, got started treating them with this medication because we had a little experience in the hospital and we're seeing success there. So one thing, as I mentioned a moment ago, there was a lot of coverage about whether you're, uh, you were, at least for some patients, prescribing hydroxychloroquine. And there's a mention of, of patients at a, a nursing home. Um, mm -hmm. And so I want to just ask you, so you're presenting with patients who've, who are tested, they, they're testing positive for the coronavirus, mm -hmm. and they are nursing home patients. So assuming they're senior and, and maybe have some other health challenges. Correct. Okay. So what makes you, what made you feel confident about prescribing hydroxychloroquine? What did you know about it before coronavirus came along? So what happened was, um, was the nursing home, um, the medical director came into the nursing home and there were three positive staff members. And so the medical director in Galveston County made the decision that he would test all of the residents and all of the staff. And so out of that testing, there were 56 positive residents and there were 31 positive staff members altogether. And so if you could think about that, that just devastated this nursing facility. And, and, and so what we've seen as examples um, is in Tennessee and in Washington State, Washington State, where they had 22 residents who, who died and in Tennessee, where they just unloaded all of those patients into into the hospitals. And so they literally called EMS workers. And and I remember seeing it on, on national news where. You had all these EMS workers that were lined up picking up these elderly patients and taking them to the hospital. Now, every physician knows that that's a disaster for these elderly patients. I mean, it, their morbidity and mortality goes through the roof if you're transporting them to the hospital. It goes through the roof when you're admitting them to the hospital and taking care of them in the hospital. And so that was just a disaster waiting to happen. You expose EMS workers to COVID-19. ER nurses, ER physicians, ER staff, you expose this whole group of people to this uh, very contagious disease, number one. And in addition to that, you increase the morbidity and mortality for this elderly population. You do not want them going to the hospital. So our goal, when we saw all this, we made the decision that our goal, once we had all these positive patients, we made the decision that it's best for them and it's best epidemiologically, epidemiologically to keep them in the nursing facility and try and treat them there with the only medication that, that we had available. 
Okay, I do want to get to the Tennessee story because before we came on air today, you were telling me that, ten and I had not heard that Tennessee story, but back to your facility. So you had 56 of the residents and 31 of the staff who tested positive for, for uh, coronavirus. Does that mean that you did all of them then, or did you prescribe to all of the 56 patients hydroxychloroquine? No, absolutely not. What we did was we um, we looked at the patients, the, the, the persons who were employees actually went home and were told to quarantine in place and, and because they were mostly younger and healthier. And for the nursing home residents, we put them through a pretty strict criteria. We saw them, um, examined them, um, uh, you know, saw their cl clinical symptoms, assessed them. Um, we measured their respiratory rates, measured their oxygen saturations. And what we found is that, is that these folks, when they had stable oxygen saturations, when they started to drop a little, that gave us concern that, that they were gonna crash. And so what we did was try to keep them, try to catch them at the point right before they needed to go to the hospital and then we'd start the medications there. So we started the meds on 39 out of the 56 patients because those were the ones that were clinically appropriate to start it on. And then we just followed them very closely. We saw them every day, uh, watched them, uh, managed them. And, and, and so far we've had, had pretty good results. Now. Our regimen was actually more than just the hydroxychloroquine. We used hydroxychloroquine, um, 400 milligrams twice a day on day one, and then 200 milligrams day two through five. And we used um, azithromycin, 500 milligrams on day one, and 250 milligrams on days two through five. And we used zinc, 220 milligrams daily for five days. So it was a five-day regimen, very short. And and what we've seen is, is we've had some success. Uh, this past Sunday, yesterday, Easter Sunday, uh, was the last day that our last group that we started were on the medications. So as of now, we have no one on the medications. And this Thursday, it'll be day 14, which will be a really important day for us because yeah. that'll be the day where where we think they're kind of, you know, over this. And so it, it'll be really exciting on, on, um, on, on day 14 this Thursday. So among these patients, and again, I think I was writing down correctly, of the 56 residents who tested positively in 39, you began this regimen of hydroxychloroquine and everything else you just said. How are they doing on it? Do, have you had bad side effects from it? You know, we've had no side effects on it. The, the, the big concern that, that, that the doctors on television say is, is they're concerned about, you know, they say cardiac arrest. And some of them were doing very well. And so some of them, if their oxygen saturation looked good, and, and clinically, they were not having any symptoms, then we saw no reason to treat them. And then some of them, um, a few of them were on hospice, and so they were very ill patients already. And so a combination of what you just said, some of them were very ill, and, and, and we knew that their prognosis was very poor already. And then some of them were doing so well that, that they, were, um, they didn't need the treatment. Okay, so you're, uh, this, is a, this is just the most fascinating thing because I don't recall in my life, I'm not a medical person, I don't have medical training, but I don't recall in my experience having physicians in this country being so subject to scrutiny by the media and by politicians about choosing a certain prescription course. So let me just start with, and I want to talk about what you think motiva is motivating that, but 
do you have other instances in your medical practice where you made a decision based on your knowledge of medicine to prescribe something and received either political or public attention and criticism for it? Do you recall anything like this? Uh, absolutely not. And certainly not in medications that are that have been used for decades like these. Um, you know, th this medicine is Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine is a very old medication. It's been around for a long time, uh, been used for lupus. I've used it in patients of mine, uh, used in rheumatoid arthritis, um, used in malaria as well, though I've traveled to Africa a couple of times and I can tell you it's not a not a very good uh, anti-malarial prophylactic drug, but it's used anyway. And so um, and so it's um, I haven't seen it. I've not experienced anything like this before, certainly not in my own practice. And I've never really seen it in other practices either, unless you were getting bad results. And so it's it's ironic that it's getting so much media attention. I, I guess I can understand it if the results were, were negative and if, if patients were were having bad side effects and patients were dying on the medication. Uh, but but in this case, we're, we're seeing improvement. Patients are actually doing well. And, and so I don't understand all of the, I guess I do understand it. I think it's political, but but I certainly don't understand why, um, you know, why there, there seems like everyone should be happy that folks are improving. That was one of the points I was going to say. In what other possible context can we imagine so much uh, shrill anger, denunciation, just kind of hysteria over the prescribing of something, which according not just to you, but to the study done by that French company, I don't have the name in front of me, but they had 79 of 80 of their senior patients recover from uh, using hydroxychloroquine, recover from COVID-19. You have Los Angeles doctors and Florida doctors, and yet somehow everyone who public ta publicly touts this is just subject to, it isn't just, it, it's, a, it's a hinting at, in fact, I think one of the words uh, was uh, dangerous, applied to you, disconcerting, it was right. disconcerting <laughs> that you would do this. I, I mean, what do you think is driving this hysteria about how, the prescribing of hydroxychloroquine? Now, I think what's driving it is, is that the president was touting it, the president mentioned it, and, and that he was touting it and saying that it was promising. Now, all he said as a non-medical person was that it's promising. And certainly he's he has experts around him. He has very good physicians around him. And so um, and so he said it was promising. And so what what that did was actually helpful for us because it did allow us to have more access to the medication. It increased the supply. And so it, it but it allowed us to 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 use it if we thought that that our patients would benefit from it. And like I say, I still have, um, uh, the treatment regimen protocols left over because I haven't used them all because not all the patients were appropriate to be treated with it. And so I, I, it's so important that, 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 that we're allowed that access and we're given that free choice to be able to make that decision. And I think people are responding this way because they don't like this president. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, I, I, someone actually asked me had I called the White House and <laughs> talked to them about this. And I I just thought that was such a silly question because I've never called him about any of my other patients either. <laughs> okay. Is there any, uh, you know, in the practice of medicine, there's a Texas State Medical Board. I'm not Correct. the name of it, but is there any system in place or does, do, for example, the Texas Medical Board, is there any oversight to what prescription choices patients make 
I mean, doctors make in their everyday treatment of patients, I mean, it, or I'm getting it really, isn't it the norm? Wouldn't it be that most doctors can prescribe what they see, they believe to be justified or needed, and there is not oversight pretty much over what they prescribe unless there's a problem. Is that right? That is correct. That's correct. The Texas Medical Board oversees physicians here, but but generally there's a lot of latitude in, in what we can prescribe because it's based on the clinical scenario. This is certainly an off-label usage, uh, but but there's many off-label usages to medications. Yeah. Um, um, hydroxychloroquine and, and azithromycin are very, very commonly used medications. There, there are millions of Americans on them today and have been for some time. And I, I suspect they're not getting COVID-19. And so, and so we are, um, so there's lots, there's lots of evidence that it's helpful. And so the, the Texas Medical Board gives us a little bit of leeway in making those decisions, certainly in, in, in the setting of a pandemic where you really don't have time to, to have a large clinical trial and where the lives of people are at stake today and tomorrow. That's exactly one of the points I'm going to get to. It's the most amazing thing to watch. On the one hand, you see the extreme concern about America and people all over the world that this this coronavirus kind of seemed to leap forward all of a sudden and we're in the middle of it all over the world dealing with a challenge. There's a drug that doctors all over the world are saying, wow, this is seeming to be helpful. And yet for some reason, in what seemed like the most uh, kind of textbook example of where you should encourage people to be trying to find something that would prevent death, instead you find criticism for people prescribing what seems to be helping. I mean, I just, I, I find that it's, it's unprecedented, it seems to me. It is unprecedented. And what it does is it, is it certainly dries up the, the supply of the medication because folks or, or, or Physicians are so afraid to use it because they think they're going to have a lot of media scrutiny. And so that's unfortunate. So actually what, what, what the, the media is doing is they're actually harming patients. They're, they're, they're harming uh, uh, folks who are elderly or in, in, in these nursing uh, home situations. They're, they're harming them because they're actually lessening the choices that they have because people are scared that they're going to get in trouble for prescribing them. And so that is... That's unfortunate. I don't know that they're trying to do that. I just think they're just so Trump-centric. They think that 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 their whole lives seem to be revolved around President Trump and trying to get rid of him and trying to hurt him and trying to harm him. That if they have someone who is a Republican and an activist and a Trump supporter, and that person is also a medical doctor prescribing a drug that Trump touts. Then they ought, their their brains automatically equate those two and say, well, maybe he's doing this for President Trump, you know, and that <laughs> it, that couldn't be more. That's crazy. Well, it's so crazy. I think it's so unfortunate that 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 they're that they that they think this way. So so my my whole life is not revolved around President Trump, but I appreciate him as president. I think he's done a great job. I support him. But 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 that has nothing to do with my medical practice, and, and it doesn't today, and it won't tomorrow. It's crazy, but it's also very insulting to think a doctor of your stature and years of practice would engage in the prescription of anything you even questioned its its efficacy or danger. Right. Just to humor, it's insulting to your medical. Uh, for who you are as a doctor. Okay, I, I, this is a really narrow question, but it's been bugging me. So the people you talked about uh, in your in this facility who were staffers who were younger and they they tested positive coronavirus and they sent home sent home to quarantine. 
Those people they, who've come in contact with the virus but aren't manifesting symptoms, are they just sent home and quarantined and there's no medication? They just kind of work through it like you would a flu. Is that right? Correct. That is correct. That's correct. And so most of them, uh, most of them did well. Uh, some of them actually did need to be hospitalized, um, a, a small percentage of them. And, and But I believe everyone is, I think there's a couple in the hospital still. And so they were hospitalized for quite some time and they got pretty sick. And, and what we see with this, because I've in the hospital, I've taken care of some patients who are um, who are younger as well. And what we found is there's a profound profound hypoxia. These guys are it's hard to oxygenate themselves, and so they have a really mm -hmm. high oxygen requirement. And so, and I'm certain that's that they were started on hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in the hospital, and probably would help them get better. That's where I was exposed to it in the hospital initially, taking care of younger patients. Uh, then we were confronted with this situation in the nursing home. And we thought, you know, you know, for young people, they have a little more reserve, you know, so they're healthier. They have they don't have all these chronic medical problems. And so we can wait a little while longer in treating younger people. We can wait until they get a little bit sicker because they're going to be able to pull through with 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 the chronic low oxygen level or an oxygen level that's low for a few days. Older people can't withstand that. They're, with the ox, low oxygen level for a few days, they're going to have heart attacks. They're going to have strokes. And so yeah. they're not going to be able to withstand it because they have less reserve, more, more, more comorbidities. And so those folks are at, at extreme risk of dying. And so that's the rationale for starting them a little bit earlier than you would start a young person. Okay, and back to the young people who didn't become extremely ill. Is it accurate? Because I want—I've been reading these things. I, I didn't mention ahead of time that I want to ask you about this, but I've been reading uh, to finish on the young people. So they head home, and they—they've had a positive test coronavirus, but and they're not feeling great. But they're not terrible, and they may sure. have either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. They wait out the two weeks, and they're all better. Right. So the, for them, there is no, there has been no medical intervention. They're back on track, mm -hmm. and they can go back to work. And they are then considered a danger to be around. They are, or they are. I mean, are they? Are they just? I mean, I don't understand how you decide they're okay just because they stayed home for two weeks. Well, so so that is a question that is 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 left. We're not completely sure about yet. Um, now we know that that once you have it. Uh, those folks, they build up antibodies to it. And so they are probably immune from, from a COVID infection now. And so we're not sure how long they will be, um, how long it will be before they're not shedding the virus. And so, and so we okay. think that if you can do an antibody test for them, then that will show that they have immunity. So we'll assume at that point they're not shedding the virus. And so they're, everyone's working on, on these antibody tests now. That's going to give us the definitive answer. What we're doing right now is some of those workers actually were invited to come back to work, and they're working, working with our COVID-19 patients. And so some of the uh, people that were infected, and so that's you know one thing that we, we are using them at. They're ready to come back to work. They've been on 14 days of quarantine. They may still be shedding the virus, but they're working with patients that are already positive for COVID-19. And so it's it's OK, it's safe for them to do that. And so and so those folks are even coming back to work, even though we know they were positive. OK, have you one last thing? This is so interesting. I'm really learning a lot and I'm trying to take notes while you're talking to. But 
I've been reading more about people who have gone in just to have the, the coronavirus test to see if they have been exposed or not, mm -hmm. and the, getting the answer that they actually already have antibodies, meaning they previously had it and mm -hmm. didn't even know it, kind of got through it with either asymptomatic or mild symptoms, and they're fine. So is it, have you been, I'm sure you've been reading about this, but is it possible that this virus has been here much longer than we realized in America? You know, I, I, I doubt it because it looks like it's, a, it's, um, it's, you know, we're not sure where it's from. It's from Wuhan, China. We know that. But, but, but it looks more like an animal virus. It is a typical, it is a coronavirus. And so there's a family of viruses called coronaviruses. I'm a, I was a microbiology major at Texas A&M. And so I, I studied about coronaviruses and, and, and the family that we normally study, they just cause a, a common cold. And so, but this is a different one. This is a different type of coronavirus. It has a little more of a different function. So it, this is a strange one. It's not behaving like a typical common cold uh, in a sense that it's more easily transmitted. And so it's, it's, it looks like for every one person that's infected, that they'll probably infect either two to three people. And, and it's also a little more virulent strain than, than a normal common cold as well. So it's under the coronavirus family. But it's um, it, it's a it's a lot different, and so I don't believe that it's been here for a long period of time. Um, I believe that this this virus is it's novel, um, came from China, probably then went to Europe, and then from Europe came over to our east coast. And certainly the Chinese cases are more on our west coast now. But um, but I think this is something that's new and different, um, and so it's it's a uh, it's something that's taken a little while to, um, to study because it's just the way it the way it behaves is just a lot different. Okay, so Robin Armstrong, I'm going to tell you, first of all, I um, I read one article that had been written about the, not just you, but about doctors in general who were um, prescribing hydroxychloroquine. And I just, one reason I wanted having the show is just to say, I think it is just so astonishing how a, a earnest, hardworking, caring physician could be, it's one thing to, you know, question medications that, that maybe are slightly unknown, but it's just kind of a, it, it is an avalanche of criticism. And I really wanted to, I'm so glad you came on and could explain, you know, why you uh, chose to prescribe it, what your observations have been about the patients who've been working through it, which seems to be the basic answer. It seems to be doing its job that the symptom that the I'm not actually, the patients I'm assuming in your facility who've been taken, they seem to be improving. Is that Correct. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what's really disappointing, uh, Debbie, is that, so, you know, there is a risk for, for us as well, you know, and I've, I've got pictures of me in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a shield and a, and a mask and a hard mm -hmm. hat and a gown and, and shoe covers and all that. And so there is a risk to myself and, and there is a risk to, to my family as well spreading this virus. So, so not only are they, crit they criticizing someone who is earnestly trying to help their patients, I've actually gone in and seen them every single day for the last week. And so, and so while they've been on this protocol, and so it's really unfortunate to get criticism from someone who is, who is not risking their lives, not risking the, the, the health of their families, and, and, and getting this criticism, it's really, it's, it's just, it's unfortunate. And I think it's rather, rather selfish and, and short-sighted. And, and so it, it, that's disappointing as well, because, you know, I've been working, you know, 15, 16 hour days and, 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 and in that facility, seeing a whole lot more people than I normally see. And in addition to that, seeing folks who are infected with a virus that, 
has taken the lives of, of many medical professionals, many nurses and many physicians around the world. And so uh, <laughs> it's just uh, um, it's disappointing to see what the media has done uh, with this story. And, and I think I, I would love to invite them to come and, and, and dress in the gear that we have to dress in and go in and see our patients with us. Um, I suspect that they would not be willing to do that. And on that note, that was a great closing point to make. Dr. Robin Armstrong, thank you for all you're doing helping coronavirus patients, COVID-19 patients, and really speaking out against this this media tyranny, criticizing uh, doctors around the country who are using something which appears to be helping these patients who, especially in the vulnerable population that you're describing in the nursing facility, these are patients who have a lot of other choices and may have been very vulnerable to being uh, to, to lethality from this virus. So thank you for all you're doing and thank you for explaining so much. I, I feel like I kind of went to a, I don't know what, like a <laughs> coronavirus 101 <laughs> seminar. But thank well, you thank so much. thank you very much. Yeah, thank thanks. you very much, Debbie. Appreciate it. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us, Mayor. Can we talk? Thank you, sir. Hang in there. All right, we'll do. Okay, that, my friends, is Dr. Robin Armstrong, and you can read on our website, AmericanCommunityTalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links. You can read a little more about him, and you can read about what some of the uh, critics were saying. Honest to goodness, that just, I mean, I just, he's so polite and classy, but I, I don't feel that polite about the people in the media who are uh, in, engaging in these attacks. I think they are just, they really are hurting. They're alarming doctors around the country. They're hurting patients around the country who are fearful. There's nothing that can be done. All sorts of bad things are flowing from uh, the media's conduct and um, and needs to be called out. And the worst part of it is, and many, in the case of many people in the media, the simple fact is they're driven by utter hatred of Donald Trump and anything they can do to bring him down sounds good to them. Okay, so thanks, Dr. Armstrong. Okay, I want to turn to our last little thing, uh, segment for today, um, and I call this segment Vaccine Tyranny, and I just want to hit a little bit about when I call it Vaccine Tyranny, uh, what I mean by that. Um, and it's, again, I am not a medical person. I am not a doctor. I don't have medical training. I believe very much in the individual personal responsibility to take care of yourself and in freedom to make choices for yourself. And this is another aspect I should have mentioned with Dr. Um, Armstrong, but the criticism of people, a criticism of prescribing hydroxychloroquine, it also makes patients potentially afraid to ask their doctor or afraid to go along with their doctor's suggestion to have hydroxychloroquine prescribed to them because they read these scary stories in the media that make it sound like it's a deadly drug and it's going to, it's just terrible things, it's untested and and it's just, it is a true evil in the, on the part of the media to continue harping on this uh, in light of the facts presented by doctors who use it. But the other factor, and I mentioned it briefly with Dr. Armstrong, <clears throat> but the other factor about this um, hydroxychloroquine criticism that's coming from Dr. Fauci and others is that there are people invested in the vaccine regimen, who, which include Dr. Fauci, very much driven to say, you know what? You're better off, patient, and you're better off, America, sitting back and waiting and staying locked in your homes staying out of life, you know, hunkering down your homes, practicing social distancing, going nowhere, doing nothing 
until the vaccine industry comes along with a, with a vaccine, which is requires research, it requires testing to validate it, and by most experts' opinions, that is 12 to 18 months away. But there are people like Dr. Fauci and others so driven to destroy President Trump that their idea of is it's better off to criticize doctors who prescribe hydroxychloroquine or any of its you know combination ways they, they prescribe it, uh, that they would rather criticize that because it gets them the goal of attacking President Trump and diminishing him and it gets them down their path, their agenda, toward mandated vaccines. So I want to mention a couple of things about the vaccine world. Um, so we've mentioned the show numerous times that Dr. Fauci is has locked arms years ago with Bill Gates and his determination to bring this entire UN agenda of vaccinating the world, and that's the way to lift the world out of poverty and hunger and, and illiteracy and everything else is vaccines. So, and Dr. Fauci, you know, he's, he's a lot of pursue whatever he believes in, including be, being part of uh, the Gates vaccine, vaccinate the world agenda. But he's not entitled to bring that preference and that investment in his, that commitment in his, uh, his career, that investment in his personal life into the vaccine mandates and have that shape his um, his view of what he advises President Trump to do and shape his, which is, I, I feel very certain, the reason he is down on hydroxychloroquine, because if everybody gets better using this medication, why would they go for the vaccine that he is so invested in? But last thing I want to mention about um, the evils of the way we're handling this, this process is that there was already, uh, just so you know, a medical journal proposing rationing care literally a medical journal advocating the idea that coronavirus treatment should be denied to elderly people and to disabled patients. And I know this was the same conversation we had with respect when the whole country was talking about Obamacare, whether or not Obamacare was right. And when you had all the pillorying and mockery of Sarah Palin, because she was saying, you know, they have death panels, but she was right that a thinking behind Obamacare was medicine and the availability of medications and medical treatment is a finite, you know, uh, there's a finite amount of it available. And so because you have the ruling, the, the governing mindset, the ruling mindset that says there's only a limited amount available. So we, the ruling people, we get to say we think it should be available to this person, this group, but not this other group over here, uh, whether it's because of their seniority, underlying health conditions, their disability, whatever it is. That was a theme that the leftists who loved Obamacare got behind. And the same kind of thinking is happening now. If coronavirus were to continue to be a long-term problem, you have people in the medical world saying, you know what, it probably just makes sense to have a, uh, to get around the uh, idea of the limited amount of, uh, of medication available and the potential unlimited number of cases available that we've really got to get to is getting around to um, the idea of the, having the um, medication for coronavirus be, not be available to certain people. And then this, again, ties back to what I've been talking about, the difference between uh, the kind of ruling elite mindset the left has. We decide. We decide who gets care. We decide who doesn't. We decide 
what is good for the people and they just salute versus the more American idea, the idea, very founding idea of America, the American idea of a country and we the people being in charge, we the people getting to advocate for our positions and getting to advocate the policies we want, very different worldview. But I wanna mention a couple last things in closing about vaccines that are so extremely dangerous as we're in this time dealing with coronavirus. One is that, and I can, I may do another show in more detail about it, but I wanna just mention it. But there is an invisible quantum dot, something, it's like a tattoo that can be used to identify vaccination and vaccinated kids. It's the idea that putting in the very content of the vaccine itself, something, and to use an analogy that you can picture, a, a tattoo that essentially allows once a child or person has been vaccinated, you can, with a test, a remote person, someone just talking to that patient, that child or adult, can use an app on their phone. This is, this is something, by the way, researchers at MIT have developed. So someone can use an app on their phone and they get near someone who's had one of these vaccines with this quantum dot tattooed into the vaccine, they can get on their phone and check and say, yep, this kid is vaccinated or this kid is not vaccinated. You know, this kid doesn't have the latest vaccinations, has missed a few, whatever they would come up with their analysis. The point being that they're, they're able to put into vaccines the ability to assess whether you had that vaccine. Right now, you know, when you send your kids to school um, and you, most parents have to submit a vaccination card to prove they've had the, rel the, um, the required shots or something that shows that they are somehow exempted from that requirement. But the only way you know that as a school is a form, is a document you get from, your, from the parent or from the state or from the doctor that lists the vaccinations that the kids have had. This would allow the, this would cut out the school, the parents, the doctors, everybody else. The kid gets a vaccine and the kid goes to school and the school can test whether they've had the vaccine. Well, the, the, that ability to put into a vaccine the, uh, a tracer, essentially, something that you can trace and find out if they have the vaccine or not, is now a reality. It's not just a, you know, uh, kind of a science fiction possibility. Researchers from MIT have come up with this. So combine that fact with there is now talk, including Dr. Fauci, about the idea that coronavirus immunity cards are being discussed. Fauci is acknowledging that coronavirus immunity cards are being discussed. So let's say this virus problem goes on in America for months and months, or some people say, come back in the fall, come back every year, mutate, come back, come back, back. And at some point, the ruling class mindset will say, look, we can't have people walking around who are not immune, people walking around. Um, and so we wanna know either who, who's had the vaccination or who is immune to it because they've had coronavirus and they developed the antibodies. So he's talking about the idea of whether they should develop in America a system where you have to show that you've been vaccinated from coronavirus. You have to show vaccinated or immunity, meaning you went through having having had the disease. The idea being they don't want all these people out there who haven't been vaccinated. And then the idea that this virus could go on and on, as they're discussing, it gets you to realizing how much 
people with a political determination to be the ruling class can use a health alert, a health scare like coronavirus to control and regiment more of individual Americans' lives to take away freedom. Imagine how they could use this. Imagine if they come up with a, vi a, a vaccine, they swear it's wonderful, it's perfect, no side effects, everybody be fine. They want to get all everyone vaccinated. And I'm going to guess it's going to be a healthy portion of Americans. I don't know what percent, but some percent will say, I really don't want to get the vaccine. I'm young, I'm healthy, I never get the flu virus, I never flu vaccine, I, I really hardly ever get sick, I didn't get the pneumonia vaccine, I don't get vaccines, and I feel fine. And I would rather take the risk of being out in public, dealing my life, you know, doing my life, and not get the vaccination. There will be a significant portion of Americans who have that view. So what does the government do about those people? I mean, right now, people, you know, may feel they point out, well, the flu vaccine, for example, is voluntary. You don't have to do it well, you know, and right now the coronavirus vaccine is voluntary. But if these, this ID card system starts and they can say, well, you know, you, no one's going to make you get the vaccine. Fine. You don't want to get the vaccine. Don't get it. But you know what? We're going to know you didn't get it. And, and during times when we're in flu season and you're driving around your car or you're at the grocery store or you're going to work, you might be stopped and you might be asked, where's your uh, coronavirus immunity card? Where's your vaccine card? And you say, well, I chose not to get the vaccine. So what kind of regulations could they put on that? Well, you know what? You didn't get the vaccine. We're in a period of time right now. We're worried about the coronavirus. You need to go home. Or you can't come out of your house without your vaccine card. Or you can't go to public events without your vaccine card. You can't go to large public events with other people around without your vaccine card. If you think what I'm saying is hypothetical, this is already being discussed in the United Kingdom. And on the American left, the people in this country who just simply think their job in government, the role of government is to control people is to protect the people from other people. And so they're going to say, look, you know, we don't like the coronavirus, we don't want it out there. And so this, you know, subset of Americans, or whatever percent it is, who don't want to get the virus, okay, fine, don't get it, but they can't leave their home during flu season. And they can't go to Trump rallies and they can't go to NFL games and they can't go to concerts. You can't get in certain things. I know what I'm saying could sound to some people like it's extreme, it's fanciful, that's never going to happen here. But ask yourself, two months ago, two months ago in February, when the economy was rolling along and everything was great, or at the end of 2019, the start of 2020, the economy's great, you know, everything's going well, Trump rallies are, you know, two or three a week sometimes and packed with people. How could we have gotten from that America in January this year to the America we're living in now where you can't even be with 10 people at the same time. When you get stopped, as you can in Texas, when you're out to be asked where you're going, is this an essential activity? Why aren't you home? How dare you be outside? When you have neighbors tattling on each other, the way a society surrenders freedom is never, not never, rarely overnight. It's a little bit by a little bit by a little bit. So Americans, back to my point in this closing segment as we wrap up the show today, the concept of having an America where we're going to agree that there should be coron coronavirus vaccine cards 
and that people who get the vaccine will have a card to prove it, or maybe even one of those little tattoo, those quantum dot tattoos they can that's invisible, they can put in a vaccine, so you wouldn't even have to have a card. So the government could be, you know, just chew the little tester up to you and say, ah, you know what, so-and-so, you didn't get the vaccine, sorry, you gotta go home. You, you can't be at this event, you can't be in the store, you can't be here, you can't be there. I know these things sound far-fetched, and I know the left is working very hard to paint concerns like I am laying out as though they are tinfoil hat crazy, only the crazy tinfoil, you know, tea party, crazy Republicans would be worried about such a thing. But the fact is, people like Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates and Deborah Burks and other people who believe that their role as public health policy makers means they get to decide what is the best plan for everyone and they get to force it on people in one way or another. Those people are, they are all around us in the medical world and in government and the American left. The idea that to use a public health scare to control freedom, it, we're seeing that happen. We're seeing what it is right now. We're seeing how the left, the, the governor of Michigan is deciding you can't even go to your lake house from your own home to your own lake house because she's in charge and she said so. And Home Depot can't sell certain items because she's, she's deemed them, them as you know non-essential. So you can't sell those. This little inner tyrant mindset exists in too many people in this country. And it's incumbent on people like us, like you, like me, who love freedom to say, you know what? No thanks on this endless uh, effort to, um, no thanks, I'm sorry. Anyway, no thanks to this idea to use the virus, to use the threat of the virus as a means of controlling people no thanks to a vaccine card that's going to be checked by the government before you leave your home. We can actually watch our freedom fritter away by succumbing to government suggestions or ideas to protect us. I'm past time out, so I'm going to rock and roll and end the show today. I want to thank you for listening to America Can We Talk. Tune in Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. And now I'll tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. We talked about um, the uh, hydroxychloroquine and the um, C and coronavirus. Hydroxychloroquine efficacy has been documented internationally and domestically. France, India, California, Florida, Texas. The fish tank cleaner episode we've talked about before was a complete mainstream media fabricated smear. Someone swallowed fish tank cleaner because it had a product similar in it to hydroxychloroquine. And we can't, you know, I'm sorry for them, but it's not the fault of the doctors prescribing hydroxychloroquine. Why would anyone attack even the trial of a drug in the face of, of the efficacy data? These are among reasons why informed Americans are growing suspicious and, and restless. Rationality isn't governing medical input. An agenda seems to be at work. The mainstream media attitude of disparagement and discrediting of hydroxychloroquine is inexplicable, except as Trump derangement syndrome. And on vaccine tyranny and ID cards, Dr. Fauci has already endorsed the idea of immunity cards based on vaccination records. Vaccination science has already developed invisible quantum dot tattoos that, can, that have the potential 24 seven, 365 health monitoring of every individual. This puts the end of freedom on America's doorstep. These are the tools of total government control of individuals. The good intentions of whoever and whatever starts the use of such tools 
are irrelevant. Think of FISA and how it was abused once in leftist hands. The abuse of immunity cards is infinitely more serious and dangerous than the abuse of FISA. And so, my friends, this is the American Committee Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Come back tomorrow and every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can